We have started a new sermon series where we're looking at a different book of the Bible each week. Last week we were in Genesis. This week we are in Exodus. Next week we will be in Leviticus. And Leviticus is one of those books that that oftentimes challenges people's Bible reading plans. A lot of people come out of the gates really strong beginning of the year. They read Genesis, they read Exodus, and something happens in Leviticus for some reason. And so I encourage you to read ahead for next week and you'll be blessed in that. And but the beauty of our approach is this. If you do happen to miss reading a book one week, you can still keep on going along with us, pick back up where you left off, and then you can go back and, and read what you missed somewhere down the road. Today we are in Exodus and we are really using chapter three as our starting point and our emphasis. So I'm going to ask you if you'd please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter three. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 1. And just a reminder, this is the very Word of our God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, that he turned aside to see God, to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your continued blessings on our time and your word as we read it, as we preach it, as we study it. Uh, May we continue to come to know You in all Your glory so that we worship You and live for You more and more faithfully for Your purposes, for Your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to begin by talking about God's glory and the fire. Interestingly, it's the book of Acts that tells us that Moses has been gone from Egypt for 40 years when this event happens. This event that we just read, Moses is 80 years old. He's been shepherding in this region, I assume, presumably, you know, nothing significant. Just 40 years of shepherding, walking through these these lands. 
And yet on this day, something really unique catches his attention. He sees a fire, but instead of the fire consuming the bush, the fire seems to be in the bush, but it doesn't consume it. And so, of course, Moses naturally goes closer to see this, and God speaks to him and says, don't come any closer. This is holy ground. And God says, remove the sandals from your feet. Now, I just want to point out that there's nothing in particular about that particular ground, that dirt that was holy. It was the fact that God was there in a special way. God is present everywhere, right? Present everywhere, but He was present there in a unique way, a special way, uh, and His presence was made known to Moses by this fire. And fire is often the appearance, what appears to people when God does manifest Himself in a special way. And when He is present in a special way. We saw this last week in Genesis 15 when the fire passed through the cut animals. And we said that's the presence of God passing through, establishing this covenant with Abraham. You look in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, it is, it is tongues of fire that come down on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. You keep reading in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, it is a cloud by day and a fire by night that leads God's people out of Egypt and they follow in the wilderness. It is a fire on the mountain in Exodus 19 when God's presence descends on the mountain and there's smoke and lightning and they're afraid. But there's fire there. And the last section of the book of Exodus, we are told that on the tabernacle, the presence of God comes and it's a cloud by day and a fire by night. And the fire is often identified in the Bible as God's glory. And I've chosen for us to really lean into and emphasize uh, God's glory this morning as we look at the book of Exodus, because I think it's a major theme uh, that we see in Exodus. And we see the word glory, for example, 14 times. This is a word that's not easy to define. It's not easy to describe. It, it, the word for glory can also be translated something like weight or heaviness, or gravity, there's a weightiness, there's a glory. Sometimes the word glory is used kind of interchangeably with honor. For example, we're going to see today God wants to get glory over Pharaoh, which I think means He wants to be honored at a higher level than Pharaoh is honored. And, and the word glory can sometimes just be used to describe this light, this fire that is often present when God is present in a special way. Um, he is spirit. God cannot be seen. He is spirit. But sometimes when His spirit is present in a special way, there is an image. There is a light. There is a fire that manifests that God's people are able to see. And in, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, it says Moses was afraid to look. The book of Acts tells us he trembled at the sight of this. Now, by the time we get to chapter 33, Moses is actually going to ask, can I see? And God's going to allow him to see, but it's going to be in a limited way. Not in this kind of unlimited, fully disclosed way. And, and when Moses comes back from that in Exodus 34, he actually has to wear a veil because the people can't even look at him because he's been in the presence of God and now he is showing something of that glory. And so he wears a veil. The people are, are, are unable to see up close. They can only see this fire from afar. I think we also see something of the glory of God when He reveals His name to Moses. Moses says, well, who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? And he said, in, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh. Yahweh sent you. But, but it, in our English Bibles, it's often translated Lord in all caps. So when you see Lord in all caps, most likely that is a, a, a translation of the word Yahweh, 
Um, which, which literally means, I am what I am. Who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? I am who I am. I am what I am. Or I will be what I will be. In other words, it's, it's really hard to define. It's, it, he, he is who He is. He will be what He will be. He has no beginning. He has no end. And I think this aspect of God, He is who He is, is sort of illustrated by this fire that doesn't consume the bush. How do you have a fire that's not consuming anything? That's typically what a fire is. It's consuming firewood, for example. It w- you would think the bush would no longer exist because the fire burned it up. How do you have a fire that doesn't consume a bush? Well, one answer is just, <laughs> it just is what it is. You know, where does it start? Where does it stop? What is it that's, that's fueling it? I don't know. It is what it is. And that's kind of an illustration. Who is God? He is who He is. He will be what He will be. He's, he's the glorious King. And, I, and, and Moses has the proper response in verse 11 when Moses, in, in before God, when he comes to realize who it is that's in His presence He is, Moses responds and says, Who am I? And that's great. He is who He is. That's who God is. And who's Moses? Who is He? That's the question. Who is He before this glorious King? And one of the real mysteries is, how is Moses not consumed? How can Moses stand before the presence of a holy God? Moses, remember, is a murderer here. He's fl- he has fled because of his murder in the past. That's why he is where he is. And yet the murderer standing in the presence of God is not consumed. That's the real mystery. The real mystery is not, how does the bush not get consumed? The real question is, how does Moses, the sinner, stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. And the reason why we don't naturally go there is because we naturally don't have a high view of God. And we naturally tend to have a pretty high view of ourselves. And we're reminded here, we need a, a high view of God and, and, and a not so high view of ourselves if we're going to accurately understand what it means that He is the glorious King. This past summer, our family had the opportunity to visit the Grand Canyon and I had visited as a kid, so I had a memory of it, and I've also seen pictures you know, over the years, so I kind of know generally what it looks like, but it was really something to be back, and it's hard to describe it. It's hard to describe how powerful, how majestic, how grand it is when you're standing there. It really does kind of take your breath. I took a picture, uh, which just can't do it justice. It's kind of like trying to take a picture of Pikes Peak when the nice sunset happens, and you say, i got to get a picture of this. And then you take the picture and look at it and go, yeah, that doesn't do it justice. I was going to send that out and show people, but it just doesn't capture it. It just can't. right? And and I always think about, when I'm at the Grand Canyon, I always think about, like, can you imagine being one of the first people who's walking along not knowing this is here, and then all of a sudden you're just walking along and there it is? You know, it's not like a mountain that you see from miles away. You know, they're just walking through the trees and all of a sudden, whoa! And, And it just can't help but just have this humbling experience of just sort of how small I am, how grand this is. And I think that's something in the ballpark. I'm not saying it's exactly like that, but I think that's something in the ballpark of the experience of Moses standing in the presence of God. Think about, this is creation. This is what the Creator created, the Grand Canyon. Think about standing in the presence of the One who's so grand He can create this. He's so beautiful. He's so powerful. He's so other. He can actually speak it into existence. And I think we are meant to have this kind of experience when we come into His presence. Wow! He is who He is. And, and who am I? Right? Now, now, God has not become less glorious over the years. Right? God is not less glorious today 
than he was in Exodus 3. Now, there have been changes since then. One, the huge change is God came to us in the person of Jesus. And the apostles, their messages, we saw him, we beheld his glory, we ate with him. So, so the difference is God is now accessible to us in a way that he wasn't before. He has come to us in the person of Jesus, but that shouldn't cause us any less to respond with, who are we? And in fact, if anything, we should probably respond even more so. Who are we? That the God who is the glorious King, who is what He is, and will be what He will be, condescended down and made Himself accessible to us in the person of Jesus so we can actually behold Him and actually eat with Him, and He invites us to. Wow! He is who He is. Who are we? When, when's the last time you, you kind of felt that? When's the last time you experienced the, the allness of God? You just said, wow, He is who He is. And who am I? When's the last time you kind of had, you felt that? Who am I before the glorious King? You know, I think at some level, that's really one of the great purposes of worship. Why we gather here on Sunday mornings, one of the main things, one of the main reasons it's just to remind ourselves through the singing, through the preaching of God's Word, why do we do this every week? At some level, it's just about reminding ourselves who He is and reminding ourselves who we are and encouraging each other to just stand in awe and, and wonder at the glory of God and to just come before Him and say, wow, you are who you are. Who, who am I? And this brings us now to talk about God's glory and the past. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 16, God refers to Himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And that's a good reminder to us. This is a continuation of the story that began in Genesis. This isn't a new story in a sense. This is a continuation of the same story. It's what, it's what began. It was what began in Genesis 12 with the promise that God made to Abraham. A very specific promise that we said was key to understanding the Bible. God comes to Abraham. What does He promise him? Children. Not just children, many children, because He's going to make him into a nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you land. That's a part of the promise. Not just any land. This specific land, the, the land of Canaan, the promised land. And God's going to bless them, and, and, and they're going to become a blessing to the nations. That's the promise, and it gets repeated over and over and over throughout Genesis. And we emphasize Genesis 15 and the covenant that God made with Abraham there. But here's the problem. When you come to the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus 15, or Exodus, uh, the beginning of the book, there's not many people. At the end of, at the end of Genesis, Abraham, there's only like 70 descendants. Very far cry from this great nation. But at the, and, and, and by the way, they're out, of, they're out of the land of promise. They're in Egypt. And they're enslaved. So where's the, where's the fulfillment of this promise? It seems nearly impossible. But at the beginning of Exodus, you start to see the fruition of the promise. You start to see, for example, chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that God's people grew exceedingly in Egypt. And by the time you get to chapter 12, verse 37, we're told there are 600,000 men, Israelites, not counting women and children. So some, one commentator said that's probably about 2 million people. Okay, well now we're starting to talk about the size of a nation. We're starting to see offspring, two million. It's a pretty decent size. So you're starting to see the fulfillment of the promise of the children, but they're not in the land, and they are enslaved. 
And there's a classic verse, a key verse, Exodus 1.8, where it says, there arose a king who knew not Joseph. It's a new day for God's people. And the Pharaoh is, they're not on good terms with the Pharaoh. They're enslaved. And, and chapter 1, verse 22 tells us that the Pharaoh said, we're going to start a policy. We're going to start killing all the Hebrew baby boys who were born. And that's, that's a major problem. That's a major threat. That's a threat to the promise going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Because what was the promise in Genesis 3.15? The woman's going to have a child, a son. And the son is going to crush the serpent's head. Well, if all the Hebrew baby boys are killed, she's not going to be able to have a son who's going to crush the serpent's head. So it's a direct threat to the promise. And the Bible says that God entered in at this point. He enters into the, to the story. And, and the Bible tells us, look at Exodus 2, verse 24, a key verse, God remembers something. He remembers the promise He made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Look at Exodus 2.24. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God enters in and He fulfills that second part of the promise, namely the land. But the way He does it, first of all, is by freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And so this includes plagues, ten plagues. It includes bringing them out. That's what the word exodus means. It's an exit. They're exiting from Egypt. It's an exodus out. And a part of that includes, of course, the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea so they can pass through. And this event becomes the definitive event of the Old Testament in terms of God's salvation for His people. What is the definitive event of God saving His people in the Old Testament? It is the exodus. And it is this event that, that, that God's people will point to for the rest of the Bible. You're going to see the prophets reference this. You're going to see the psalmists reference this. You're going to see the New Testament references. This is the event that God wants them to remember. 3.15, He says, I want to be remembered. He wants to be remembered, and specifically, He wants to be remembered for this event that He did. And in order to help His people remember, He gives them a meal. And he says, I want you to take this meal annually to remember. And that's what we call the Passover. We see it in Exodus chapter 12. And of course, Jesus celebrated this Passover with his disciples on the night uh, when he was arrested. And on that same night, he transformed this meal and he transformed it into what we call the Lord's Supper meal, which we took as a church last week. And so when God's people took the Passover meal, they were taking it in order to remember the events of the Exodus. When we take the Lord's Supper meal, we are meant to remember the events of the greater Exodus, the second Exodus, wherein Jesus, our Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians 5-7, Jesus, our Passover lamb, rescues us from slavery to sin and brings us out so we can be free. And, uh, and so we are supposed to remember this when we take the Lord's Supper. Tomorrow is Labor Day, and my guess is most of us are excited about uh, uh, having the you know three day weekend. I, I, I was kind of curious, what's a good def what is Labor Day? What's a good definition? So I, here's a definition from Wikipedia, which by the way, not a great source to reference for students in here writing papers. Don't do what I'm doing right now. Don't reference Wikipedia. All right, this is a, an example not to follow. Labor Day is a federal holiday to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the works and contributions of laborers to the development and achievements of the United States. And my guess is we are all grateful for our laborers. 
We're grateful for Labor Day. We're grateful for a three-day weekend. And my guess is it's not overly meaningful to too many of us. I'm guessing not too many of you are kind of moved by Labor Day. You know, for most of us, it's like, hey, three-day weekend, football season starting, you know, end of summer. It's kind of an exciting time. Uh, now, I want to contrast Labor Day with Memorial Day. I, I, my guess is for most of us, Memorial Day is a lot more significant. It's a lot more weighty. I'm, I'm using that word weighty very intentionally. Weight. Glory. There's a glory. There's a weight. There's a gravity to it. In a church with so many military families and people who have served in the military, you know, we are remembering lives that have been lost and given, lives that have been given for us, for our country. And so there's a weightiness to it. It's not just a three-day weekend where we get to grill. Uh, it's something meaningful. At least it should be, right? We're talking about lives lost. We are remembering sacrifice. And in a similar kind of way, God means for us to remember sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice He made and His Son made for us in order to rescue and redeem us from slavery to sin. And we, we glorify God and we honor God when we remember the past and we remember the sacrifice and we remember the cross and we remember the blood. I don't think it's any coincidence that the glory of God, the presence of God comes down on the tabernacle. And what is the central feature of the tabernacle? It is the, 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 the place where the sacrifice, where the blood is poured out, the mercy seat. Right? Where, where you find the blood, where you find the blood of the Lamb being poured out, that is where you find the presence of God. That is where you find the glory of God. And that is pointing forward to the ultimate blood, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus and if you want to find the glory of God, if you want to experience the glory of God, if you want to experience the presence of God today, where do you find it? You find it in places where you remember the sacrifice. You remember the blood. You go to the cross. If you want to experience the glory of God today, you have to go to the cross. If you want to experience the presence of God today, you experience it at the cross. That's where His sacrifice was made. The presence of God, the glory of God descends on the sacrifice. And so a part of what we do when we gather for worship, a big part of what we do is we sing about this. We sing about the blood. We sing about the sacrifice. We sing about the cross. And some people say, why, you know, why do you talk so much about blood? It's gross. And animal sacrifices. You know, it seems so archaic. Why don't we clean it up a little bit and make it a little more modern? Modern people don't like to sing about blood and sacrifices and God requiring sacrifices. And the answer is, we want God. And we want the glory of God and we want the presence of God. And God says in His Word, His presence and His glory is found where His sacrifice has been made. So if you want to experience the glory of God, you'll only find it at the cross. You'll only find it where, where there's God's sacrifice. This is where His glory is found. Third, God's glory and judgment. Look, look with me at chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. You know, kingdoms rise and fall, and the kingdom that was on top in this day was Egypt. Egypt was the powerhouse, and it's no coincidence that God wants to use Egypt for His object lesson. 
No coincidence, his people end up enslaved in Egypt because God wants to demonstrate he's greater than Pharaoh. He's the king of kings and Pharaoh is not. And Egypt is chosen for this object lesson for this purpose. Pharaoh is chosen for this object lesson for this purpose. Listen, for example, to Exodus 9, verse 16. God says, for this purpose... I have raised you up, Pharaoh. God says, I have raised up Pharaoh for this purpose to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised up this particular man, Pharaoh, for this particular purpose to show that God's greater than Pharaoh so that God's name is, made name, is known and made great and seen as being greater than Pharaoh throughout all the ends of the earth. And Paul, of course, quotes this and references this in Romans 9 and, says, and, and quotes Exodus where it says, He will have mercy on whom He has mercy and He will harden whom He wants to harden. And He chooses to harden Pharaoh and He chooses to harden Pharaoh for a particular purpose and that is to display His glory over Pharaoh. Listen, for example, to chapter 14, verse 18. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Three times you see this phrase in Exodus 14. I will get glory over Pharaoh. God means to get glory over Pharaoh. What does that mean? It means He wants to be seen as the greater. He wants more honor. And He wants to prove it. Who does He want to prove that to? He wants to prove it to Egypt. And the Egyptians, he wants to prove it to the world, the watching world. He wants to prove it to his own people. And he wants, in particular, his own people to respond with worship and praise that he is the great God that he claims to be. And so we have Moses, for example, singing this song in chapter 15. And there's a great line, uh, chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That's how God wants us to respond to the fact that he is the most glorious. He is the most honored. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? I want you to notice something very specific. God does not save His people privately. It's almost never a private event. It's always a public event. What God does in rescuing and saving His people is always put on public display, and that's for a reason. He wants to show the whole world He is the King. He's the glorious King. He doesn't just go and rescue them privately. It's very public. It's, it's, it's drawn out. It's very dramatic. Very dramatic. And, and by the way, when He rescues them, He doesn't just give them a nice private piece of land, a nice private island. Like, this is where my people will be. The rest of the world's over here. But my people are going to be over here and be holy to me. No. <laughs> he gives them land that belongs to someone else, inhabited by someone else, I should say. And they are to dispossess those people. Why? Well, a big part of it is because it's meant to be public. It's meant to be lasting. It's meant to be remembered. It's meant to be noticed. It's meant for people to say, wow, He is the King of Kings. He is the glory. He really does have honor and glory over all these other powerhouses. And, and it involves great judgment. It involves plagues, and they're nasty. It involves taking the lives of firstborn children. It involves hardening hearts. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. And finally, Pharaoh relents and says, go. And then God works so that Pharaoh changes his mind. And Pharaoh pursues them so that 
When they're in the middle of the sea, God closes it back up. Once again, it's this dramatic public demonstration that He is the King and Pharaoh is not. Here's my question for you. Does your view of God allow for this? Does your view of God allow Him to be the kind of God who seeks to get glory over kings and pharaohs? Is that consistent with your view of God? Does, Does your view of God allow for Him to take the lives of Egyptian babies? Babies. God destroys them. Does your view of Him allow for that? Does your view of God allow for Him to take the life of every human living on the earth except for Noah's family? Children, babies, women. Does it, does it, do, do, do you, is that consistent with how you think of Him, with how you view Him? Does your view of God allow for Him to, at the very least, allow for literally billions of people to experience hell for an eternity and the suffering and the punishment that comes from that? Like, is that, is that consistent with the way you view Him? And, and I'm not saying you have to like it all. And I'm not saying you, you should glory in the death of someone. Um, but, but I am saying this is clearly the biblical view of God. Right? The, the, the judgment is a part of it, and not just a part of it, but He actually glories in it. He gets glory from it. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with God being a God who glories in judgment over the Egyptians? Right? And, and I just want to point out, if not, if, if, if you just say, I'm just not sure I can swallow this. This is not just one little kind of doctrine among many. Like if, if this is hard for you, there's a lot of other parts of the Christian faith you're also not really getting. Because it reveals you kind of have a lower view of God and a higher view of, of man and yourself. So, so this affects your view of, of judgment. It affects your view of yourself. Because that reveals that you don't really believe that you deserve the judgment of God. If God's not really a God of judgment who judges and finds glory in it even, then that, that reveals that you don't think you really deserve the judgment of God. And maybe even more importantly, it also reveals you don't really understand the cross. And you don't really understand what was happening at the cross because what was happening at the cross is the judgment of God was being set against His Son instead of us. And God was doing it in a very public way for a reason. Romans 3.25 says He put forward His Son publicly to show His righteousness. One of the reasons why God uh, sent His Son to die the way He died was to demonstrate that God is a righteous judge. Namely, He deals rightly with sin. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't think of it lightly. He deals with it in a weighty way, namely the cross. It was not sufficient for Jesus to die in any old way. It was not sufficient for Jesus to die in a private way. It was public. It was a public demonstration of God's righteous judgment set against His Son instead of us. In the same kind of way that God was publicly demonstrating His glory in bringing His people out of Egypt, in the same kind of way that God was publicly demonstrating He's the King when He dispossessed people so that His people might enter the land, it's the same kind of public way that God sent His Son to the cross so that the wrath of God would be set against the Son instead of us. And if you want to experience the glory of God, if you want to experience the biblical presence of God, then you have to come to grips with the judgment of God and that God's glory is found in His judgment and ultimately His judgment against His Son who didn't deserve it at all 
for me and to put on public display God's righteousness. And this brings us forth and finally to talk about God's glory and His people. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So I want you to notice the first event that God wants to take place when His people are delivered is He wants to meet with them on this mountain. What mountain is it? Mount Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb. And God wants them to come there and meet with Him. It says to serve Him. That word serve can also be translated worship. Two terms are very closely associated. We actually call this a worship service. right? We're serving God here as we gather and serving each other. Uh, but, but God wants them, He wants to deliver them and rescue them. Why? So He can bring them to this mountain. Why? So He can be with them and dwell with them and they can be with Him and recognize Him as God. And I just want to point out, this is a restoration. If this happens, this will be a restoration of what happened in the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve are with God. They're in the presence of God. But when they sin, they get removed from the garden. And by getting removed from the garden, they get removed from the presence of God. And, 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 and God promises He's going to restore this so that He can be with His people and His people can be with Him. And what we have here is sort of a, an indication. It's going to happen. And this is the goal and this is the whole purpose. And by the time you get to the end of the whole book, Revelation 21, how is it all ending? The new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven and God is going to dwell with His people. And He's going to wipe their tears and His people are going to be with Him. It's the whole goal of everything that God is doing. In Exodus 29, verse 46, captures this perfectly. Maybe the key verse. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is why I'm emphasizing the presence of God, the glory of God. God wants to do this for Israel in fulfillment of His promise to Abraham, and He wants to do it so He can be with them, and they can be with Him. And then He wants them to turn around and represent Him to the nations and be a blessing to the nations through the way they, they obey Him and follow Him as King and make Him known as King. So for example, chapter 19, verse 6, God says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the view that God has for His people. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want you to be a holy nation set apart for my glory and my purposes. And God, of course, gives them these commandments to follow. And the, the commandments, there's quite a few of them, they're summarized by the Ten Commandments, which we get in Exodus 20. This is how you are to live. This is what it looks like to live under my kingship and my rule. And, and just think about what's the first commandment? The very first commandment. No other gods. It's all about Him being their God, Him being present with them, and them not being preoccupied with other gods, and them living in such a way that the watching world sees how great God is because of the way they live for Him as their only God. And if and when they turn to other gods, they make Him to look to be less than the God that He is. Uh, and, and I think it's interesting to notice that as soon as, as, as it comes right on the heels, these commandments come right on the heels of God reminding them, I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. Like, I'm doing this based on my grace. I'm doing this based on my mercy. Sometimes we think of the law as being, you know, oh, He gave us the law. He gave Him the law after He saved them. 
Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. I rescued you. I've delivered you. And then I'm showing you and telling you how to live before me as king. And of course, how long does this last where they're living for him as king? Almost no time at all. They immediately turn around and and form this golden calf and bow down and worship it. And we see the pattern. It's the same pattern we saw with Adam and Eve. Almost immediately, they rebel and turn away. And you just see the pattern over and over and over. And here it is again, that the human heart is, is deceived and easily deceived and deceptive and broken. And, and God actually says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm done with them. I'm gonna, my people are going to experience kind of a flood and I'm going to start over Moses. And Moses intercedes and he prays intercessory prayer. And you know what he appeals to? He appeals to God's promise to Abraham. Remember your promise to Abraham. Remember your covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15. Remember your promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. Remember your promise to Jacob. And the Bible says that God relents, Exodus 31, 32, 14, I mean. And God renews His covenant with them by His grace. By His grace, He renews His covenant. He renews the tablets, creates new tablets. But we learn this very important lesson. There's going to be rebellion. There's going to be rebellion throughout. The law cannot change their hearts. That's the lesson. The law cannot change the human heart. It's not because there's a problem with the law. The weakness is not with the law per se. The weakness is with the humans, the people, the heart. It is sinful. It is corrupted. Something more is needed. Something better is needed. Something greater is needed. And Paul talks about this. I want to read this passage, key passage, 2 Corinthians 3, 14-18, to talk about this, something more is needed. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is a veil that prevents us from seeing God, but it can be removed. We can see Him. It can be removed because of Jesus Christ. He's the one who can remove it. And it can be removed to such an extent that we can not only see the glory, we can actually be transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, we can be free. We can be set free. We can be in God's presence. And that's what we're created for. And that's what we're longing for. But only Jesus Christ can remove the veil. Why? Why Why Jesus? Why only Jesus? The, The author of Hebrews tells us because He's greater than Moses. And He's worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. Jesus is the builder of the house of God. Moses was faithful. He faithfully led God's people out of slavery. He faithfully interceded for them when they sinned and incurred God's wrath. But he couldn't change them. Moses couldn't change their hearts. Their hearts were wicked. Jesus, on the other hand, can. Jesus is the greater high priest. Why? Because He can change your heart. He can change your heart because of what He did for you at the cross. 
He can give you a new heart and put His Spirit in you so that you do have a changed heart that wants to obey and love God and follow God. And He's a greater priest because of who He is. He is God's Son. He is God in the flesh. He is God Himself. So when you come to Jesus, you are coming to God. And you can behold the glory of God. You can see the glory of God. And you can stand in the presence of God because of your priest and your mediator. I love this song we're about to sing. It may be my favorite of all the songs that, that, that we sing. A great high priest who ever lives and pleads for me. Jesus is a great high priest who ever lives, lives forever, and He ever pleads for His people, for us. He's the great intercessor, even greater than Moses. And there's one line in the song we sing that says, He's the great unchangeable I Am. He is the I Am of Exodus 3. He is the King of glory and of grace. God's glory is real. God's judgment is real. God's fire is real. His judgment is certain and His judgment is coming. The incredible news though, that hasn't changed. That's still the case. God doesn't change. He's unchanging. What has changed is He has provided the way for us to stand in His presence. To stand on holy ground. To stand before Him and incredibly to not be consumed by the fire. And the provision He's made for us is His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you will simply look to Him and trust on Him, you can be right with God. You can stand before Him. You can see Him face to face. And you can be transformed from one degree of glory to another and live life the way it's meant to be lived. So go to Him. Trust in Him. He will remove the veil and you will behold the glory of God, which is what you're created for and what you're created to do. Let's pray.